Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator, and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. Welcome on my podcast, Research Lives and Cultures. Today, I've got the pleasure to have with me Professor Martina Rauner. And Martina comes all the way from Germany in Dresden. And it's really a pleasure to have you on board on the podcast. I invited Martina because she's part of one of the ITN network that I'm collaborating with. And uh, she's working with lots of PhD students. The podcast is about sharing experiences that people have in the research environment and having conversation about what makes a supportive and thriving environment for researchers. So, Martina, can you start us on your early years in your research journey? How did it all start? Well, first of all, uh, welcome, Alzer, from my side, and thanks, Sandrine, for being part of this uh, podcast. I guess maybe started at when I was doing my master's or PhD thesis. So I did both in the same lab in Vienna, where I studied also biotechnology. And while I was studying, I also worked as a part-time technician in the lab. That was back then and still is, I think, uh, focused on bone biology. So that's also where I first got interested into bone. I think that, I guess, was a great start to place because working part-time besides studying, I think I already got some insights into research environment, science, academia, which I didn't know a lot about because I don't come from an, uh, a family of academics. So, so I think in that sense, I already learned a, a little bit along the way. And uh, yeah, I really liked the lab. I liked my boss there who gave me a lot of freedom to do research, to learn methods, to travel to conferences, even when I was still a master's student. So I think for that, I'm very thankful because he really lit the interest or yeah, the other sparkle in science uh, in my heart. So yeah, those were the first defining years, I guess, of my scientific career. <laughs> So what's interesting, looking at your, your CV in LinkedIn, was that you did your PhD very quickly. There is an expectation that a PhD will be three to four years, but you, you did it very quickly. And I guess the experience that you had working as a technician was part of making that journey faster. Yeah, I think it was mostly the regulations they were at that time. So at the time I studied at the Medical University of Vienna, they actually just implemented this PhD program. Back then, it was designed to be two years. And actually, while I was finishing, they then changed it to the three years that is more common across Europe. So I think I was, yeah, let's say lucky, or I don't know if it's lucky to do it faster or take a bit longer. I think like now in retrospect, I think it really doesn't matter. <laughs> 
except if it takes six or seven, eight years, it's maybe a bit too long. But yeah, so I think it was just a bit defined by luck of the program back then. And uh, I think if I would have started two years later, then I would also have had a regular three-year program. <laughs> but I was lucky with the data also, I guess, that I had something to publish in that time. So at the end of your PhD, what did you decide to do based on you know, what's uh, visible on your LinkedIn profile? It says that you applied for a fellowship. And it's interesting because uh, often the default position for some PhD graduates may be to seek a postdoc position. So this particular position that you got, how did you go about choosing it and deciding on the area that you were going to work on and also the people that you were going to work with? Yeah, so I think it again started with my time just being in the lab a lot or maybe earlier than some PhD students because of my part-time job. And as I mentioned, I was able to go to conferences quite early on. So I remember that going to a conference in Germany was one of my first ones where I actually was staying with relatives. <laughs> so it would be a rather, you know, inexpensive conference. And there is where I met Lawrence Hofbauer, the person I'm still working with today. And back then he was like the god of rank like an OPG system. So something I was working on at that time. And so it was very interesting for me to meet him. And later on, I asked him if I could do a short-term fellowship in his lab to learn some methods. And back then he was in, in Marburg in Germany. And I was at that time doing my PhD thesis. And I guess, yeah, we found that working together was easy and well. So we decided to go for this fellowship. I uh, wrote the application and then we were lucky enough to get it. And at that time, he was then also relocating to Dresden. So once I completed my PhD, I then moved to his lab to Dresden and continued my postdoc there. So it was really driven by the topic and by the person I think I wanted to work with at that time. If you're reflecting on your years as a research fellow early on, what made you decide to then become an academic and, and, and a research group leader? Because again, for many researchers, they may, I mean, especially in the biologies, you may end up doing two or three postdocs before of having a couple of fellowships before being able to move in to become a group leader. So your past feels pretty unusual, or at least from a UK perspective, where it would be quite unusual to transition so quickly into having your own research group. I think what you say is very important that across different countries, the systems in general are different. So the other thing that happened for me is that Yeah, I think I never had a concrete plan. I don't know if that's good to say, but I never thought I want to be a group leader or I want to be a professor because I didn't know anyways what a scientific career was. As I said, not coming from an academic family. So I think the way it happened for me is more driven by the interest and the motivation that I had. So when I was a postdoc, I worked obviously on my project. and But at the same time, I had other interests and other areas where I thought, oh, that would be interesting to look at. So And in Germany, once you have a PhD, you are uh, allowed to apply for your own funding. And that's what I then also did early on, is to apply for my first grant. And then you get the grant and then you get your first employee, like a technician or a PhD student. And that's, for me, how it kind of developed. So there was never a stage where I really said, okay, now junior group leader or so. It just kind of developed. 
But I agree. I mean, there's also the option maybe more at research institutes where you really go away, like the typical thing to the US or for a postdoc, come back and then apply for a group leader position. But for me, it kind of developed in our lab. And I think at medical faculties, there's more room for maybe <laughs> individualized career steps than in typical research institutes, maybe. One of the things that I'm really interested in is how, when you are setting up your research group, then how do you start building the a research culture that is the one that you want to have for your research group? And, and again, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about what you're saying of coming from a family where maybe you didn't have kind of a, a, a a framework of how to go about becoming an academic. Maybe it opened doors to just be whoever you wanted to be, but how do, did you find building the relationship with, you know, new PhD student or technician to build an environment that you felt that's the, the type of atmosphere that I really want for my research group? I think probably that I was or am also still influenced by the way I experienced it in working with Lawrence. He always gave me and others a lot of freedom in developing their ideas. I mean, yes, he put pressure, but like not in a bad way pressure. So, I mean, in a, in a way that you feel motivated. And I think that's also just the way I work and the way I think that maybe others want to work too. So I think one of our yeah, leading motivations is maybe just to have enthusiastic people that are motivated to work, that are trustworthy obviously trust is a big issue in science because i mean i have to be able to trust them what they produce and vice versa so and yeah i think one important thing that i maybe also have or think is important is to allow for failure so i think i'm not the typical person who would immediately go blame someone if an experiment doesn't work but my natural response is always to think what an experiment maybe didn't go wrong ex like as opposed to always assuming the student did something wrong. And I think that's important to just allow for failure. Like even if you make a mistake, I mean, I make mistakes all the time. It's that you just are open about it all of it and then, you know, learn from it and continue to work because I mean, that's also how you learn. And yeah, I think I've heard from some of my students or technicians that I think they also appreciated that without me like knowing it so consciously in the beginning that that was one of the, maybe cultures in the lab, but <laughs> throughout the years that they appreciate that, yeah, they can just come to me and say, there's a problem. Maybe I mixed something up and it's not going to be a big deal, most likely. How do you set the relationship at the beginning when you start working with a new student? Because again, they may have experienced very different research culture, working with other academics. So in a way, at the beginning, building trust is not something that's automatic. And the type of conversation that we have when people start working with us kind of set the scene. So in your case, what are the things that you think that you do well at the beginning of this working relationship to give people the space to be who they want to become in, in your research group? I think when I now meet a student the first time where they come to our lab, I think I do try to be open and positive and assume that they want the best and I also want the best for them. So having a immediate positive relationship somehow. So 
I think I'm not so super critical at, at the beginning or skeptical about stuff. So I think that's my first approach is to be positive. <laughs> but then, as you say, it of course depends. Now, is it a PhD student or a postdoc? I think then you can expect different things and you can maybe also talk to them in the beginning of what you expect, what they expect, what they how, how they would like to be mentored, how you think it might be good. So just to find a common ground. And especially for PhD students who come newly, I do like also to give structure to the project. So I'm not like, okay, here's here's the topic of bone biology. Now think about something. <laughs> Because, I mean, usually there's a project behind the funds that we get to hire someone. So I say, okay, this is the rough outline. There's still wiggly room for, you know, adding suggestions and stuff. But I think in the beginning, it's good for newer people to give a structure because then they feel more secure is I think my experience. And as I said, it doesn't mean they can't also experiment in between, but I think at the beginning, the whole topic is new. The literature is overwhelming. So I think in the beginning, yeah, I say, okay, this is our aim, like, you know, a bit more short-term, long-term and just to have like a rough plan of where we're going. What do you think is really challenging in supporting the professional development of early career researchers? And I'm asking this question for a good reason, because I, I worked for many years as a researcher developer in, in an institution. And I, I was on the side of listening to stories of postdocs or PhD students who felt that their supervisor or their PIs wasn't necessarily so keen of them engaging beyond the boundaries of just the lab work. When you're an academic, what you need for your own career and for the, the, the evaluation that you probably under within your own institution, you need the research done, you need the papers published. But when you are supervising early career researchers, there is an understanding that they may not carry on in science uh, and so on. So in your case, what do you find challenging in kind of giving this kind of holistic experience in terms of developing themselves as a, as a scientist, but also all the other stuff that they may want to be getting involved in? I think, again, because I was treated so well as a PhD student myself and as a postdoc, I always, as I said, had supportive advisors who let me travel, who let me go on vacation. I mean, these are things you think should be normal. But I also heard different stories that bosses like prohibit you from going on vacation and don't want you to present data at a meeting. I think, I don't know, I've, I haven't been treated that way and I don't treat my people like that because I think it's important for them to go to places, to meet people, to present data, even though it's not published yet. So I think I have a quite unrestricted approach to that. But of course, let's say someone wants to go to industry later. I don't have experience in industry. So then often I try to link them with friends of mine who are in industry so that they can exchange with them. And I think also the universities these days offer a lot of programs to look into different career options if they say no science is not or academia is not for me. So I, I think the universities offer a lot. I think I also try to point out opportunities for them to look into courses or so. Obviously, I don't know everything. I can't help them with all the steps of the way. But Of course, I try to share my experience and uh, I think I have a quite unrestricted approach to that. I think every PI hopefully has the best interest of their students at heart. Actually, I also think that not everyone is cut out for academia. So sometimes I even say, well, you know, think about it really hard if you really want it, because it, it does come with a cost. I mean, I guess every job 
comes with the cost. So one of the questions that I have is about uh, how you see your role as a senior academic in the way that you, you lead your research group. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was about giving freedom for people to explore. But at the same time, as a research leader, there is a certain amount of work that needs to be done. So how do you create a balance in terms of giving direction and, and also giving space? And it's particularly important for postdocs because often people are employed to work on a specific project, but need to have on the side the things that will be the, their research vision when they're applying for fellowships and so on. So yourself, how do you create that balance? Yeah, I think that mostly I would see myself maybe as a facilitator as a group leader so kind of to provide opportunities to do their PhD thesis to work on a project to have you know all the methods the the funds available to buy stuff to do the experiments actually so really making sure that the environment is there to do research I always feel there's always wiggly room to do side projects. I mean, it obviously depends on how much the work packages of a project need to be dealt with and, and worked on, but you also never know where science takes you. So it it could happen that you think that this should happen, but then it, something else happens. And you anyways have to shift your your orientation and then say, okay, well, maybe the hypothesis was wrong after all. So let's go this direction. So I think science have to be flexible. And I think this flexibility also gives time. And I think that's also where maybe the extra motivation comes in of someone who wants to really become independent. Probably they will also need to put in a little bit more extra effort to get there. So I'm not saying they now always have to work uh, 200 extra hours a week or so to get there. But I think this intrinsic motivation to go the extra mile probably has to be there if you really want to become an independent group leader at some point. So, but I mean, yeah, I don't know how I, how we balance it exactly. Uh, in the end, I, you know, we, we don't meet daily for meetups. So maybe with postdocs every two or three, I mean, whenever, you know, important results come up that need to be discussed. And in between, I think the people have a lot of freedom to read, to write, to, I don't know, attend courses. So I think it's what the people make of it also. When you started working as a research leader, what did you find the most challenging in this period of transition? Probably. Well, I think in that transition, I didn't feel that anything was so complicated because I started obviously very small and just with one my one technician at the beginning who worked for me so I think at that time I was also working in the lab still a little bit and we could uh, discuss stuff together so I think that wasn't so yeah I mean maybe delegating work was a bit new <laughs> to actually have someone you can ask <laughs> but the most challenging thing that came maybe two years later then is when you realize your funding is gonna end like on the project and you you know you have your employee now sitting on that fund and you need to make sure that he will have continued funding so that he still has a job or he or she so i think that pressure of always making sure there are funds around for all your people i think that's maybe one of the toughest things that i experienced uh, or experience still <laughs> as a group leader Being a woman in the world of research, people talk often about some of the biases that exist. Implicit biases are things that we are now discussing about, but uh, I certainly know that when I started in science, 
we didn't discuss these things, but also we were, as women, we were pretty unaware of maybe some of the barriers that were in the way of transition. So in the work that you do now in your department, and you work also as the scientific di director of the Bonn Laboratory, as a senior leader now, what do you think is, is your role in terms of providing equality and diversity, and not just from the gender perspective, but much broader perspective of bringing on people from very diverse backgrounds to science? Because people may do the degree, but actually, and you said yourself, you were not from a family, from an academic background, and the sense of identity and belonging and something that can inhibit us to, to kind of dare apply for a fellowship because we feel, well, I'm not really good enough or I don't belong to this fancy lab. So now that you are in a position of making things happen for others, what are the things that you're trying maybe to achieve in, in increasing that, that diversity? Well, I think, yeah, I agree with what you say that maybe women tend to be a bit more, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm cut out for that and if I'm enough. And I think my motto also, what I used to practice is just just do it <laughs> like the Nike slogan because you won't know if you don't try so first I mean that's first of all but of course that could also apply to men I mean it's not a gen I think for women in general we try to support them especially let's say when they have kids come in I have everything a bit more complicated maybe because then you just yeah you're a bit more limited and so you, you really have to make hard decisions so I think from our side we want to provide opportunities to combine it the best way possible. But I think, of course, in the end, it's a specific decision of each person how much they want to invest in a career. I always feel that's very important to say also that I think our job is to provide opportunities. But if women want to take it or not, is like fully their decision. And I think it's also uh, totally okay if they say, I don't want to become a group leader or a professor, because for me, the family is more important at this stage. And I think that's important to respect somehow and not always assume everyone wants to go all the way. And maybe also with this newer, younger generation of people, I think a lot of times also men decide to not go all the way and want to have all this responsibility. And I think that's also okay. I think for me, I just feel like we should provide the opportunity for those who want to do it and who have, you know, problems then with picking up the kid or so that you make opportunities possible that they can manage if they want to. So it's really about the choice, uh, like, or get, giving choice to the people. And I mean, diversity, that's also an interesting topic. I think our lab has usually been quite German up to maybe three or four years ago. But in the past years, we have become more international. And I think that was also or is still <laughs> an, a nice experience because, yeah, you get a lot of the and other vibes into the lab. Everyone comes with their own temperament and their own experience. I think it is a bit more challenging with this kind of uniform if you just have their, you know, well, I don't want to say more, but they're not so, you know, their temper is not so hot the others. So, yeah, it's definitely a learning experience. And I think also I have myself learned a lot and I'm continuing to learn and to uh, see how you can, yeah, also be sensitive to different and, yeah, everything that comes along with it. So, yeah, for, for me, it's still a learning experience, but I definitely enjoy having some diversity around. I think it's, it's very enriching. How can we support new lectures or new research group leaders 
to learn to create an atmosphere, a, a research culture that is really supportive. Because I've seen in the past where you may have a, a new PI who is super excited about their, their work and who really is extremely driven and create a, a new team. And people will come with very different motivation and aspiration. And in a way, as, as a new group leader, maybe your motivation or the way you work doesn't necessarily match the team that you've, you've recruited. And learning to adapt is something that everybody knows they should be do doing, but actually doing it is hard. What do you think what's missing to really support PIs at that stage? And again, from one country to another, from an, an institution to another, there are things that exist or not. But in a way, what do you feel is really critical at, at that moment when your first few PhD students, they, they can make or break your research group and your career? So how can we best support new research leaders to really set up groups that really work? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, besides probably what you mentioned, these different courses that they would offer anyways on how to lead a research team, how to communicate. I mean, I think there are lots of courses out there like that, that people can attend and also young group leaders. I think probably the one question is, does the PI see his or her own necessity to do a course like that? Or do they think anyways, I'm a superstar, I, I don't need it. <laughs> so I think, again, it has to come also from within that you feel, okay, now I'm responsible for some other people. I want to take care of them well, too. And of course, in contrast to that, you have the pressure of publishing, the pressure of getting funds, as you say. And uh, I guess that's a bit of a clash and you have to find a middle way to allow students to, to learn. I personally always liked one-on-one -on -one because I think on top of all these courses that you've mentioned, and I've done many leadership courses and communication things because they're offered a lot. And of course, I always feel like, why not take a bit? But I think if you really have a topic you want to discuss, then one-on-one -on -one coaching, I think, can be very beneficial because Every person is different and everyone has their deficit in place. And if you really want to work on that more uh, deeply, then I think actually that one-on-one -on -one coaching is the best way to go rather than group groups of 10 or 15 people. It's interesting you saying that because I work as a coach with academics, so I'm not going to say okay. anything different. And, and, I, <laughs> and, and in a way for me, it's very much putting into action Because whatever theories we may get from a course, until it hits the reality of the interaction that we have with members in our team, I think that, especially in the sciences, we do very little personal reflection. And as a team leader, that you need to do that to be able to move on and to mature in some ways in the way you interact with your team member. So, so I, I definitely agree with you. Yeah, putting it into practice is actually... I guess the most difficult step because identifying it is one thing, but then actually taking the time for yourself to practice things is also sometimes not so easy and takes some effort. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you want to really achieve as a research le leader? What is really the most impact that you want to make, broadly yeah. speaking? <laughs> I think the biggest impact that I would always want to have is that the people are passionate about science that I can transmit some of the passion that I have for science to to my team <laughs> so I think that's the 
I think that's my top priority because I think everything else would follow if they have the passion and they want to go that uh, direction, then I think they'll find the skills they need. But the passion is really something that's what I hope that my people see in me too. (laughs) And uh, what do you think is the one thing that matters the most in the way we interact with others in the research environment? Because there are, you know, lots of big egos and lots of people who are very driven and the way they interact with others is not necessarily that they really think about others in the way they interact. You referred earlier to give, keeping the motivation and in the interest in the science, but how do you stir the interactions so that they create spaces where people can really thrive based on whatever agenda they have themselves or whatever their motivation for entering you know the research world i think okay for what matters the most in the interaction with others in general i think is maybe to treat others the way that you would want to be treated because i think it's important that you show respect that you of course if it's also within your team have a well or even collaborators have a trustworthy relationship and then you can communicate well and open I don't know. I, I'm still a big fan of having a like a f- fear-free environment, so so that people dare to just try something out, or that they feel like I can just you know try an experiment, and I don't necessarily have to ask my API if I have to do it or not. And if it works out, then I can show the nice state, and if not, well, nothing happened. So yeah, I don't know. For me, it was also always having the freedom to, to just do things. And of course, that takes resources and a lab where to do it. But I think that, for example, in our lab, we have those means so people can just try a few things on the side. I mean, I'm not talking now a single cell sequencing experiment that costs uh, 40,000 euros, but you know, some small scale things. And just not being afraid that you're you might be blamed for something or so that you can just you know have a positive attitude try something well and if it didn't work it didn't work so in my having this I don't know I always had very nice bosses so I think I never uh, had to you know be fearful myself and I could just try things and I think that's also where motivation comes from if you read an interesting thing and you're like hmm could I also look at that in this direction and then you start doing stuff and I think that's where motivation comes from, at least for me. I guess everyone has drivers, but yeah. And uh, we, we are often very self-critical in terms of the choices that we make or things we could have done better. But in your case, what do you think you would do differently to make it easier on yourself in navigating your, your career? What In a way, it's almost like, what would you give yourself permission mm-hmm. or self-kindness? Or yeah. I don't know what the, mm-hmm. the word would be to describe it. Uh. Probably that would be saying no more often. So I think along the way, I feel like I have improved in saying no, but I still think there's a long way to go. <laughs> and people ask you for things, ask you to review papers grants thesis I don't know what and practically you could be reviewing all day and yeah not being afraid to say no (laughs) is I think a critical thing maybe again especially for women who I think oftentimes tend to want to please someone but I think overall you have to say no way more often (laughs) on the same line uh, but kind of almost thinking about very early on when you started your career what would you tell your your younger self about the research career journey I guess I would say that 
if it's your passion and you you're curious and you want to find out how things work, then science also in academia is a great choice. It doesn't mean that it's not sometimes hard and you have a lot of admin stuff to do and a lot of stuff to do that you don't really like and that's not direct science but it's part of the job and i think yeah if 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 you're curious if you want to know find out what's going on then i think it's still worth it because it has a lot of benefits of having this freedom to look at what you want to look at interacting with a lot of different people traveling that's also a very nice part of science i think besides working on your own ideas and stuff is really the exchange with like-minded but still very different people so i think it's rewarding in the end at least it is for me so so if somebody didn't have the time to listen to all of our discussion and just wanted five tips to be able to navigate their working relationship in the research environment what would be the key words of wisdom that you would share with them Well, for working relationships, I think it's important to be open-minded and um, show interest in the other person. To also like listen actively and not just talk. Yeah, I think to respect each other is very important and appreciate each other. Also, the work, for example, your employees might do really respect. You know, all the hard effort. Yeah, communication. I think is key that you really communicate expectations that you talk just about everyday things as well to get to know each better i think that also leads to trust and that i think is important uh, you have to trust each other to work together successfully over a longer period of and yeah maybe one last thing is also avoiding gossip i had one experience with a collaborator i met for the first time and then he gossiped a lot about some other people and that was immediately for me a red flag because i was like well if that guy already gossips so much and i don't even properly know him how is our like how would we collaborate together so i would always have weird feelings so i think if it's a really best friend where you sometimes you need to gossip about someone then i think don't gossip about anyone <laughs> it's acknowledging that the scientific community is actually a small community of people and showing respect yeah. to others like yeah. that that's uh, yeah very very fair point mm -hmm. uh, wonderful well thank you so much It's been really a pleasure this, discussing with you and really, uh, really nice uh, meeting you all the way from, from Dresden. I visited Dresden actually when I was a student. I had a trip uh, traveling, traveling on the, on the, on the train all over Germany. So I, I have been to, to Dresden a very, very long time ago, but. Uh, very nice. So you would definitely have to see it again since in the past 10 years they rebuilt a lot. Oh, okay, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, when we can travel again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Martina, thank you so much. And uh, I'm really looking forward to meeting you at some point, probably through the ITN program. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewees on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com. Thank you.